And it's not the extent of Mary's faith. It's the object of her faith. God and Him alone that makes the difference. That's why Mary becomes the lady that God calls her to be. Because God in all of His radical nature calls her to Himself. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last few Sundays, we embarked on a new Sunday morning series entitled Radical Disciples. And today we are coming to the penultimate study in radical discipleship, and we're turning to Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me please to Luke chapter 1 as we read together verses 39 to 56. Luke chapter 1. To set the passage in context, earlier in the chapter, in fact the passage immediately before this one, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary And much to Mary's surprise, he tells her that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. She will give birth to a baby boy who will be the Savior of the world. And when Mary is beginning to get her head around all that is going on, she leaves her home and she travels to the hill country of Judea to be with her cousin Elizabeth, who is considerably older uh, than Mary is, and that gives you the backdrop to where we are going this morning. So, Luke chapter 1 at verse 39, page 1588 of the Church Bible. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of this humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down, excuse me, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Now, what we read 
in Luke chapter 1, Mary and Elizabeth would tell for years and years and decades to come. Luke, the author of the gospel, also authored the book of Acts. And when the apostle Paul served in, he spent three years in a prison cell in Caesarea, and at that time, if you read Luke chapter 1, the first four verses tell you this, that Luke says, I carefully investigated everything from the beginning. In other words, Luke sat down with Mary as an older lady and told her all that had taken place. And what takes place in the second half of Luke chapter 1 is so utterly surprising, so astounding, that Mary is simply incredulous that all of this took place. And put yourself in Mary's position, where the angel Gabriel turns up right out of the blue and says, you are God's chosen vessel. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will give birth to your firstborn. He will be Christ the Lord, the Savior of the world. Now, can you imagine Mary trying to process all that went on? And I am fairly convinced from a study of the text of Luke chapter 1 that Mary was able to process this for this reason, that God Himself had caught up Mary and brought her to a place of profound, unfathomable depth and intimacy. And Mary understands what it means for God to break into her life, and she is never the same again. And we're going to see that as we get further and further into this passage this morning. But the passage begins with three words that tell us so much. Look at it at verse 39. Luke writes, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, excuse me, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Two phrases in there I want to draw your attention to. And I want to draw your attention to them because Luke draws our attention to them. Luke begins this latter half of chapter 1 at that time. And if you know Luke's writing both gospel and Acts, on 132 occasions, Luke uses the phrase, at that time, when the time had come, when the time was fulfilled. Time was important to Luke, and it was important to Luke for a number of reasons. Nine times in his opening chapter, he uses a similar phrase, verse 5, verse 10, verse 20, verse 23, verse 39, verse 57, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 2, 21, and 22, at that time, or similar words. Now, notice what else he does. Keep one hand in chapter 1, flick over to chapter 2, and he begins with similar language. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree and a census that should be taken of the entire Roman world. Hold chapter 2, flick over to chapter 3. 
And what do we find there? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. So why does Luke go out of his way to talk about time and events? Because Luke is the historian of the New Testament, and what he's saying to his readers is this. These things happened to real people in real places at a God-given moment in history. And he ties it down to people and places. And whenever you read Luke, look for that principle. It is a pattern in Luke's writing. He gives you at times the political and historical context and backdrop. That's why he goes to all the trouble to mention governors and rulers and ties it down to specific people in specific places. Now, the second phrase he uses is the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us think of Luke writing of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Three times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in chapter 1, and four times in chapter 2, what is known as Luke's infancy narratives. And what you discover with Luke is this, that when you carefully read the text of Scripture, it is sprinkled with reference to the Holy Spirit in Luke's writings. And what Luke is saying again is this, not only did these things take place in the lives of real people, at a given place, in a given time, but God Himself was at work. And Luke, quite deliberately, especially in the Gospels, almost has the Holy Spirit standing in the shadows. Doesn't draw attention to Him, doesn't highlight the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't feature Him too closely, but He simply mentions Him and passes on. And the Holy Spirit is orchestrating and engineering and bringing to pass the eternal purposes and plans of God. And that's what happens here with Mary and Elizabeth. Now, having said all of that, let's look at Mary's response to all that's going on. And it begins, this is a passage of Scripture, verses 46 to 55, called the Magnificat. It has been used in church since the year, since the earliest days of the Christian church. The last 2,000 years, we've used the Magnificat, and it is an outstanding model of prayer. If I was teaching this in a seminary class in New Testament studies, I would pause the class, and we would take the best part of 45 or 50 minutes to do several things. We would examine this prayer of Mary's. We would look at the parallel structure of the composition. We would look at its similarities and its contrasts with other ancient Semitic poetry. We'd look at its form, its metrical dynamic, and its neatly arranged clauses. And we would spend an hour doing exactly that. But what strikes you and I when we read this prayer is not its cleverly 
and carefully constructed text. It's not how it compares with other ancient Semitic poetry. Why this prayer leaps off the page and comes to life is this. It comes to life because Mary, in giving us this prayer, tells us so many things about what was going on in the life of Mary. If you're ever at a Sunday school class, if you're in a men's Bible study or a ladies' circle group, or a Sunday morning at church, and you hear someone pray, their prayer tells you so much about what's going on inside. And this prayer does exactly that. It tells you what is dominating Mary's thinking. It tells you what is the priority of her heart. It tells you that her heart and mind and soul is soaring heavenwards. And Mary has in this prayer a constructive preoccupation with God Himself. Notice how it begins. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Look at it again. Please, I don't want you to miss this, how important and how utterly spectacular it is. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let me ask you, have you ever found yourself on a Sunday morning opening up the Scriptures, and they come to life right in front of you? You've been busy praying or worshiping, and your heart and mind and soul has been captured by the hymn, and you've been moved heavenwards, and you discover an appetite and a deep, passionate longing for the things of God, and you don't want the hymn to end. You don't want the prayer to be over. Suddenly, it's making sense, and it's as if God Himself has gathered you up and drawn you close. And if you've ever experienced experience something like that, now you're beginning to glimpse a little of what happened in the life of Mary, so utterly caught up with God Himself. And please notice this, and remember who is praying. It's Mary, and Joseph doesn't get a mention. Neither do her parents. And think of what happened in the weeks leading up to Mary leaving to go to the hill country in Judea. Think of how she would approach Joseph. <clears throat> Joseph, there's something I need to tell you. Mom, Dad, sit down. I want to share something with you. Think of the challenge that lay before Mary and it's not mentioned. The circumstance of her life, the situations and the challenge that lay before her is not mentioned. Now, they are crucially important, but they're not mentioned, because when it comes to 
biblical prayer informed and fashioned and shaped by the principles of Scripture, which this prayer is, it will always fundamentally focus on God Himself first. My soul glorifies in the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Talk of overwhelmed, caught up, brought to that place of profound intimacy, that's why this is a model prayer. That's why it's loved for centuries by the people of God. And the other thing you see here is this, that in order for Mary to go forward, in order to face the challenges that lie before her, what does she do? Notice what she says. Verse 48, He has been mindful. Verse 50, His mercy extends Verse 51, He has performed, He has scattered, He has brought, He has filled, He has helped. And what is Mary doing? Not only is she focusing on God, she's acknowledging His faithfulness and His goodness and His love and His mercy. Mary does what the hymn writer hundreds of years later did. Oh God, our help in ages past. That's what Mary is doing. She's looking to the past. She's looking to the faithfulness of God down through the centuries and realizes this, that never having left His children in the past, He will take them into the future. That's what Mary is saying in this prayer. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, Richard, over these last few Sundays, as we've looked at Mary and Martha at the beginning of our series, as we looked at Nathaniel and Matthew, as we went on to look two Sundays in Ruth, looked at Peter, and now we come to Mary. And Richard, quite honestly, I am not a hero of the faith. I am not Ruth. I'm not Peter. I'm not Matthew. I'm not Nathaniel. I'm not one of the apostles. I don't have faith to the same extent that these people had. I don't have great faith. But quite honestly, if Gabriel had turned up and surprised and shocked me, I suspect I could give a similar prayer. That's the kind of experience I need. Well, allow me, please, to push back as gently and as pastorally as I can. It was not the extent of Mary's prayer that mattered. It was the object of her faith that mattered. The radical disciple is shaped and fashioned by the circumstance they find themselves in. You've heard me say over the last few weeks that the radical disciple is shaped and birthed in a radical relationship. And it's not the extent of Mary's faith. It's the object of her faith, God and Him alone, that makes the difference. 
That's why Mary becomes the lady that God calls her to be, because God in all of His radical nature calls her to Himself. And let me pause for a second and share another illustration, much shorter than our initial one today. This past Thursday evening, <clears throat> the lovely Miss Ruth and I decided it was time for some relaxation, and so we went to the movies. And if you have grandchildren or children who are 12, 13, 14, early teenage years, and want a good family night out at the cinema, Tomorrowland by Disney really is excellent, definitely worth enjoying. And the main heroine in the story is a girl called Casey. Casey is 15 years old. Her dad is a NASA engineer, and he's been told that once they deconstruct uh, one of the, the space rockets, his job will be over. And as you can imagine, he's not looking forward to that. He has two children, and he's a bit concerned about the future. And Casey realizes he's down, and he's sitting at a table in the kitchen, and she says to him, Dad, I have a story for you. And you can see the dad, and his response, his behavior tells you everything. His body language, he just goes, oh, Casey. And he shakes his head. And she says, Dad, I know you know this story because you've told it to us hundreds of times. And parents, isn't that dreadful when your children do that to you? Uh, all the wisdom you have imparted, they give back to you. And her dad looks at her and sighs again. And she says, Dad, let me see if I can get it right. There are two wolves in your life. One represents darkness and despair, and the other represents light and hope. One, darkness and despair, the other, light and hope. And she leans over to her dad and says, which one of them will live? And the dad kind of shrugs off, and he says, yes, I know, the one you feed. And right there, in the first 15 minutes of a Disney movie, was so profound. Which will live? The one you feed. This passage this morning tells us this, that if we are ever to be radical disciples of Christ, part of our nature will be depending on us feeding our faith through the Scriptures. Mary's faith is packed with biblical principles. It is a prayer that is informed and shaped and fashioned and educated by some of the most profound lessons of faith found anywhere in the Scriptures. Mary knew her Bible, and she knew it well. She knew it well. The days ahead for Mary were not easy. In fact, eight days after the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph, as typical young couples, excited, cannot wait to live their life with their newborn, go into the temple in Jerusalem. And Simeon, who was an older man, who had prayed for the redemption of Israel for most of his life, realize who he has 
And in fact, three times it tells us the Holy Spirit was with Simeon. In two verses, three times, the Holy Spirit is at work again. And Simeon takes the Christ child. He gives thanks for the Messiah. He passes the baby back to Mary and Joseph. And he does what no pastor should ever do. And he looks at Mary and he says to her this, this child will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel, but your own heart will be pierced with a sword as well. Can you imagine a pastor saying that when a couple come for baptism? And I would turn and say that. But what Simeon knew was this. Thirty-three years later, on a Friday afternoon, she would stand at the foot of the cross and look up. And her firstborn son had been arrested and tried and tortured and crucified, was now dead and about to be buried. Can you imagine the darkness that descended upon Mary? Can you imagine the trauma of her heart and mind and soul? And how could God of all people allow this to happen to His only begotten Son? How could He dare do this? But the story wasn't finished because Sunday was coming. And on Easter Sunday morning, Mary with the other ladies went to the tomb. And she got to the tomb, and I can't help but wonder if she stood there for a fraction of a second and realized that all of the trauma and the grief and the hurt and the pain had quite simply been rolled to one side. And she stooped down into the darkness and peered to get a sense of what was happening. Then, then the penny finally dropped. And I imagine Mary standing back and holding herself and looking heavenwards and saying in the full awareness of what has taken place, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices with God my Savior. For He is not there. He has risen. That's what makes her a radical disciple. Not the extent of her faith, but the object of her faith, and He has risen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. We feel and sense this morning that it is impossible to plumb the depths of Your Word. And Father, our prayer and heart cry this morning is this. Take us from this place fully focused on the object of our faith, on Christ Himself. Strengthen us, uplift us, deal with the challenge and the trauma and the sadness that some of us are living with and enable us, please, to see you at work in the midst of it all. 
Holy Spirit, draw us close to yourself. Enable us, please, by your grace, to be your radical disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you interested in membership at First Presbyterian, or do you just want to learn more about our church and denomination? Join us for our next First Look class on Sunday mornings. Register with Chuck Emery at 672-1753 or see Emery at firstpressgreenville.org.